0: We are moving forward. Hold on one second here. One of the things that, uh, I, again, I, I love history, and I love trying to figure out what it must have been like, whatever historical segment. I used to teach history. I was a high school teacher. I was my major in college, so I love that. I love imagining. And I love Acts chapter 2. That's the, that's the day, six weeks after the resurrection, Jesus spent six weeks with, with the disciples, and then he ascended to heaven, and then he told them, hey, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And so they were waiting, and then, and then on that day, what's called Pentecost, uh, when, that's the day the church began, because the Holy Spirit came in power. And all the believers who, who had seen the resurrected Christ were meeting together, they were overwhelmed by the Spirit, and, and they spe- began speaking in languages that they had never been taught. And it was languages, they listed out the languages of the, of the regions of the Greek world. And, and Jews who were there for one of the feasts at the temple, who were from all over the Roman Empire, were there. And they said, how come we hear these people speaking in our languages? And they were hearing the gospel in their own language. And these people, they had never been taught these languages. And someone saying, oh, they're drunk. And Peter stood up and says, no, they're not. This is the spirit fulfilling what Joel said, that when the, the end time would come, the, 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 the change in the age, that the gospel would be, be preached by all sorts of people in, in languages. And that's what happened, is that we see the gospel being proclaimed. And we see on that day, that, that first day, the first preaching of the gospel, Peter said, hey, this Jesus... And everyone there knew who this Jesus was, because he was famous at that time, and they just crucified him. He says, this Jesus you just crucified is the Lord Messiah, and you need to repent. And that day, 3,000, and this is probably more because it's 3,000 men, it doesn't say how many women or their you know, younger youth uh, had become Christians, but at least 3,000 became Christians that day. Got baptized right away, and, and it just when you read the book of Acts, you see how the church just exploded And they they estimate that there's well over 100,000 believers in Israel alone in the first few years of the church, because within six weeks, another 5,000 were added, and you just see this, there's an explosion going on. But I imagine, what must it have been like being a Jew who, you know, 10 years after this, you're you're hearing about this, you're seeing these, these, these Jewish Christians, and you're like, what's going on with all this? Who's this guy they keep talking about? Because remember, all Jews at that time had a conception of what the Messiah was supposed to be and do. The promised one, the one who was sent by God, who'd who'd been prophesied about in the Old Testament, they all had expectations. A lot of them were wrong, and that's why Jesus had to do so much correcting. But imagine being 10 years after that or 15 years after that, and you have questions. Well, I thought the Messiah was supposed to be this, do this, teach this, blah, blah, blah. Well, you guys, that's why Matthew was written. Matthew was written at least 10 years after the resurrection, after Pentecost, for Jews who had not seen Jesus, or, or maybe they just didn't really care then, but now they had questions. This gospel is an apologetic to the Jews in Israel about Jesus Christ. They, it was to prove to them in all sorts of ways that Jesus indeed was the promised Messiah. And though they had crucified him, he had risen from the dead and they still had a chance to repent and turn to him. See, so that's, that's why we're going through the gospel of Matthew because we are, we're seeing all these proofs laid out that he indeed is the Messiah, the King, but he's more than just the Messiah they were expecting. He's also the Son of God, the divine Messiah. All right? So so that's why we're looking through Matthew. And and really when you in just real briefly, I have it on there just kind of how the chapters have been broken down so far that the first four chapters are really about the king and his credentials. See, this promised Messiah had to have a certain background, born in a specific place and had to have some kind of affirmation that he was the right guy. And that's what you see in chapters one through four. And it's answering the question how do we know he's the right Messiah? There's the ancestral affirmation, meaning his lineage. He was from the line of David. He had to be. If he was the Messiah, he had to come from King David. He, he had, we had angels affirming that this is the man. We had the Magi. Remember them? The, we all hear about the Magi. Remember, they were the kingmakers of the East. They weren't just really smart guys in the east, outside of the Roman Empire, to the east in Persia. These were the men who were really the ones who would, who would come and say, this is the next king. And that's what they did here. They came to see Jesus and they didn't just say he was the next king. What did they do? They worshiped him. We, have, we, see the, we see that Jesus, even when, they, uh, when his family took him down to Egypt, that was in fulfillment of prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. We have the forerunner, John the Baptist, his affirmation about Jesus. Jesus is the one. Then when Jesus gets baptized, when he comes out of the water, what do we have? We have the heavenly affirmation, this is my beloved son, God speaking from heaven, God the Father. We have God the Son coming out of the water, Jesus Christ, and then we have... God the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. We have the the divine sign, Jesus is the man. So that's that's chapters 1 through 4, the king and his credentials. Then we see the king displaying his authority, his power. And it's really answering the question in chapters 5 through 10, how do we know he has the righteousness and accompanying power and authority the Messiah is supposed to have? You could say he's from Bethlehem and all that kind of stuff, but does he also show he has power to do miracles, and, and, the, and the right understanding of God's Word. You guys understand, the Messiah had to be a man of Torah, a man of God's Word who could teach God's Word and live in God's ways. And chapters 5 through 10 go through that. There's tons of proofs of, uh, that, that are laid out by Matthew. In chapters 11 and 12, we start seeing... because. They know, if you're a Jew living at that time, remember about 10, 15 years after Jesus died and rose again, they know that Jesus was not accepted. That's why he was crucified, right? So chapters 11 through 12, actually we see it throughout the whole book, but we see a lot in chapters 11 12, we see the king and his adversaries, those who were his opponents, and they were mainly Who? the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and we see the conflict, and we see that Jesus actually uses prophetic pronouncements of doom, of judgment on them. We call them parables. Remember, parables weren't just nice little stories. They were, according to Isaiah, they were part of God's judgment on those who rejected the Messiah. And while they're certainly cool stories to help us understand more about the kingdom, we see Jesus actually pronouncing prophetic doom on these guys, And saying, look, they're the false shepherds, I'm the true shepherd. Then we see in chapters 13 through 17, he starts talking more about what his kingdom is like. The kingdom is like, and then he'll give an illustration. And and that's to explain to these Jews what, because see, the Jews at that time believed they were part of God's kingdom in Israel, even though they had Roman oppressors, they had a concept, here's what our kingdom is, we're part of the kingdom, and one day it'll be a physical kingdom when David comes back. They're expecting that. But Jesus had to say, no, the kingdom of God is much different than it's been laid out to you. And that's why we have Jesus teaching on what the kingdom is like. We even saw it on the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about what the kingdom and the kingdom people are supposed to be about. Then we see in chapters 18 on, he starts talking specifically about the community of those who call themselves his followers, how they were to, what was their character supposed to be like? And there's one key word, humble, absolutely, good call. The humility of caring, so, for, caring for the least of these. And what was this, when I say the least of these, what was the object lesson he held up in chapter 18? A child, a toddler says, to be one of my followers, a son of the kingdom, you have to be like this. And now we're not talking about childish, we're talking about childlike. Humility is the key characteristic there. And and caring for others, not having a me focus, but an others focus. So that's how how this whole section's been building. And then just before this, we have uh, this this interaction with a person that was an illustration of what he had been talking about. Who, Who came running up to him? The rich young ruler. He was an illustration of what Jesus had been talking about, about his community. Because here's the deal. The rich, young ruler showed some kind of humility by running up, right? He publicly ran up to Jesus and knelt before him, said, what must I do to be saved? What good deed must I do? Remember that? But did he end up following Jesus? No, he walked away sorrowful because he didn't want to give up his real God and he didn't want to give up his real security and he wouldn't submit show true humility to the king. He walked away from salvation. And now Jesus, and then he, you know, he, then Peter says, well, we've left everything. What will we have? And he says, hey, you guys will be rewarded. You guys are going to be the ones who will reign with me to be judges over Israel. But to all followers, you, hey, you, you say you've lost a lot, but don't worry. You'll get a hundredfold and you'll inherit eternal life. So all this is leading up to this illustration. He's going to illustrate in this passage, to these disciples. And by the way, these disciples, were they showing humility at this point? No. They're the ones who've been jockeying for position, and that's why Jesus said, hey, you guys need to have this kind of attitude as this child. They're jockeying for position. I want to have this seat. Who's going to be taking that seat? They come up again later, by the way. They don't learn their lesson, but that's okay. It helps me. I track with them. I'm stubborn, too. But the point is, is that, He has to give another illustration to these disciples and for us to show us who gets into the kingdom and how. Okay? In the Jewish mind, if you were rich and, oh, and you had a prominent place in the synagogue, what was that a sign of? God's blessing. Oh, the rich will get in first because obviously God blessed them. And he's like, no, you guys, you have to understand things are a little bit different. My kingdom is not what you are used to or what you're expecting. Remember, they had misconceptions, but so do we, don't we? We do too, but let's let, let, let's let the Lord show us, okay, as we get into His Word this morning. And the illustration's very straightforward, but we have to remember what it's about, and then we have to ask the piercing, penetrating question, not for our neighbor, don't nudge each other, right, but for yourself, okay? Okay. So that's where we're at this morning. And by the way, I have to start in the verse before, because uh, the last verse of, of chapter 19 is actually the transition verse into chapter 20. All right, so it says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. He's just talked about eternal life. And who's going to get it? The rich young man had walked away, and they're, they're going through major uh, cognitive dissonance. Something's not right. Rich young ruler, well, he should be in, right? And, and Jesus is telling him, no, look, you guys have to think, think, think of things differently. And then he goes on to say, for, and that's say, hey, I'm going to explain. This gives a reason. This gives an illustration. For the kingdom of heaven is like And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, and that's the twelfth hour, so an hour later, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, Each of them received a denarius. Hmm. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Hmm. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. All right? All right? So let's walk through this and, 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 and let this speak to us and let's see where we end up and, and if we have to change any of our attitude, all right? So first of all, in verses 1 through 7, as we read through this, I, I call this seeing God's grace and salvation because that's, that's what he's describing here. It, it's, he's, it, him hiring the laborers is really, he's, he's saving them and sending them to do his work, but let's just walk through this. So I want to see God's grace in this. So again, like I said, verse 30 of 19 starts off the illustration, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And again, this isn't about status in the kingdom, it's to emphasize who gets into the kingdom, the inheritors of, of eternal life listed in verse 29, okay? These inheritors of eternal life, who gets in and why? How do they get in? Do the rich deserve more? Do they get better seats at the table, larger mansions? Who deserves salvation and what status will there be? And then how can the last be first? You know, if we're, if, if we're thinking to a previous, he's used this, you know, the last will be first. He, he uses an this this illustration where, hey, when you come up to the king's table, don't sit next to the king if there's an empty seat. Sit, sit where? Sit at the far end, and if he wants to honor you, he will tell you, hey, come on up, because the last will be first, right? But in, in this situation, it's not, it's, he's not comparing. He's not talking about that. He's talking about how do you get in the kingdom. So if the last is in first place and the first person is in last place, how can that be true at the same time? It's if they all enter equally, they're the same. Notice what they say later on. They say, hey, you've, by giving them a denarius, you've made us all equal. That's the point. There is no one who deserves salvation more than the other. Not one of you deserves it more than I do, nor do I deserve it more than you do. That kind of goes against us as human beings, doesn't it? Because here's the deal. Here's what we do. We don't look this way. Before you, God, I'm a wretched sinner. Here's what we do. I'm better than a lot of them. Isn't that what the disciples were doing? Yes, that's what we do. And that's what he's attacking here in this. So let's keep moving through here. For the kingdom of heaven is like, he's explaining how his kingdom is different from what they were experiencing at that time. And you understand, the, the religious situation in Israel of that time, as we have seen, is that so many were apathetic towards Jesus, and you had the religious leaders, the shepherds of Israel who actually rejected Jesus. So the spiritual situation there was terrible, and Jesus has to help them see that His kingdom is much different. They've been taught by their religious leaders external righteousness, do your good deeds, but it doesn't matter what's on the inside, you know, just do your good deeds on the outward, look good, right? And, and you're good with God. He's saying, no, no, no. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't remember back then, go back and read it. It's pretty straightforward. It's not just, hey, don't murder somebody. If you have hatred in your heart, what are you called by Jesus? A murderer. Because that's where murder starts. It starts in the heart. So there's no one unrighteous. And, and we should all end up at the place saying, wow, I need God because I'm messed up. Because we all are aside from God's saving grace and mercy. So he's, he's helping them understand the kingdom in this context of who gets in. And he goes on to say, a master of a house. And I love that word because that word is actually oikos despot. Oikos means house, despot means, what's a despot? A ruler, and some we get like a, a despot, ooh, that's an evil ruler. The word just means a ruler or a master, but isn't that a cool word? That's a, it's a, a dual word in the Greek. I don't know, I'm just sharing that, because you know, if, if you can do it, I can do it once in a while, right, Patrick? Cool word. There's actually a couple more in here that I really liked. But we have an illustration that's actually familiar to them, right? A master in his vineyard and, and working in the vineyard, okay? Um, we have the master, obviously the owner. And by the way, the master in this illustration stands for who do you think? It's God. Okay? And, and, the, da- and the laborers, who are they? Pe- the laborers are people, and those who get hired are those who get saved. They, because he's sending them into the vineyard. The vineyard, Israel, is called God's vineyard. So it's a familiar un- uh, parable and, and using familiar imagery. Okay? So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 9, I believe it was, He looked on the crowds, and what did He say? He had compassion on them, for they are harassed and helpless. And then He turns to the disciples, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest, plead that you would send workers in the harvest. And what did He do? He sent them into the harvest in chapter 10. So God sending workers into the heart into the field means, hey, go and do my saving, go be my workers so more people can know about this, know about me. All right, so that's kind of the background of this, just so you understand, all right? And, and when there's day laborers, by the way, in this illustration, they had day laborers in, in Israel, but here's what that meant. If you were a day laborer, it meant that you did not have your own land or your land was so small and unproductive, you had to hire yourself out. And since you were a day laborer, in Deuteronomy, it says that, hey, at the end of the day, the, the one who hired them has to pay them at the end of the day, because if they're a day laborer, it means they're living hand to mouth. They need enough money to feed themselves and feed their family if they have one. So to be a day laborer was not a very good situation. Matter of fact, in Israel, that was the lowest place you could be. You had nothing to back you up. You didn't have land or land that was productive enough to take care of yourself. All right, And so these day laborers, it says that they're in the marketplace. For us, we have day laborers, don't we, in our, in our society? Yeah. yeah, we have, we have day laborers. Down the fields, you know, I drive past there, going past Cal State Channel Islands, and we have them, right? And some of us, most of us don't live that way, but this, this is a very real situation. You know, they're waiting around. But here's the deal, were these day laborers lazy, if they were lazy, they wouldn't be in the marketplace looking for work, okay? So please hear that. When he, the word idle is used twice in this story. It's not talking about, hey, being lazy. It means they haven't been hired yet. And, they're, and to not be hired at 6 a.m. is bad. That's when the day, the day would start. At 6 a.m., it would go to 6 p.m. It's a 12-hour day. So this story goes from 6 a.m., then we have the 9 a.m., then we have 12 and 3, and then 5 p.m., the 11th hour and then 6 p.m. is at the end. So we'll see that as we walk through. But here's the deal. Each time he goes to the marketplace, God's not finding, or the master's not finding lazy workers. They just haven't been hired yet. Okay, So that, that should change the story. They're not bad in this. Okay, They're to be commended for being there wanting work to take care of their families. And also, too, just to keep this in context, is the vineyards, okay, the harvest for the grapes happens in fall. I've been to Israel twice. I've been there in November, which is, you know, early winter. And during the day, you know, up to the the 80s or more, during night it would cool off. But if you're there in September, August, September, hot. It's like Southern California. So if you're working from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., it's hard work. And the way they'd have to do is the vineyards were not out on the coast. Vineyards were up on the hills and the mountains. And to make good vineyards, you had to terrace. And so that means if you're harvesting, you're not just walking on flat ground over to here. You're having to go up and down. It's backbreaking work. And, and harvesting grapes, you can't just chop down the whole thing. You have to pull off clumps of grapes. It's, it's hard work. All right, And the fall harvest is speedy work, and that kind of makes sense of this, why he needed to keep getting more workers, right? He had to work hard and fast. So that's all background to what's going on here in this situation. So a master of house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyards. He was there at 6 a.m. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So a couple things. First of all, the word agreeing is a cool word in Greek. Sumphoneo. sound like an English word? Symphony. Sum means with. Phoneo means to say or to sound. So a symphony is those who are sounding together, working in together. So agreeing, just a fun word. There you go. But the, the word was a denarius. What's a denarius? It's, big, it's a day's wage. And actually in this, we see that He's, the, the master does not negotiate with these guys who are going to work hard for a whole day to pay them less. He agrees to give them a day wage. He's actually a very generous master, okay? And that'll play out more, obviously, as we keep going through this. So they agree for the wage, and they go off into the vineyard, all right? And going about the third hour, so he's there at 9 a.m. now, Others, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Okay, idle again is that they just haven't been hired yet. And that's what they, that's, they, they're desperate because they've already lost out on three hours of work. Again, they're trying to take care of families most likely. So they're getting a little bit desperate. I'm going to get less pay. Uh, it's going to be a little bit tight tonight when I get home. And he said to them, "You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you." So they went. There was no negotiation. They didn't even. There was no agreement. He's just. They're just going to trust his generosity. They, they, they know that he already agreed to denarius a day for these other guys. Hey, we we're, What were their expectations as far as they're paid? Will they get more or less than the other guys? Less. They're, they're expecting less, right? So they off they go. And then going out again about the sixth hour, so now he's going back at 12 noon, half the day is gone. And then again at the ninth hour, he goes back at 3 p.m., he needs more workers. The question is, in this story, is what will he pay them, right? We would expect less. Yeah, that's normal to think that. And about the 11th hour, at 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, because we haven't been hired yet hey, you guys go to the vineyard too. And so they went. These men are to be, again, commended for being there, made themselves a bit... If you're, if you're there, at, what are you doing there at 3 p.m.? You're only going to get three hours of work. But these guys want to work. They're desperate. They're there at 5 p.m. waiting. and then, But here's the deal. He asked them a question. Do you, do you think he knows why? They're still standing there waiting to be picked up? He does. But see, his question draws out from them a response. Not hired, no work, no pay, no money for food that day. They're desperate. Yet, he hires them too. And, and again, we wonder, well, what are he's going to pay them? Like five bucks or something? But again, I want us to see this. Again, looking at the story because we know kind of what happens in the end. But don't miss the grace of God in this. Because we find out this is talking about who's being saved and brought into God's work in this world. He's bringing them even up to the 11th hour, he's saving them, and yet we see that they will get the same wage. That shows the grace of God. Don't miss the grace of God. And see, that's what, that's what happens when we start looking at others. We start comparing. We start thinking, well, look at them. Look how good I am. Therefore, I deserve. We start losing our joy. We start missing out on God's grace and the wonder of His grace. He is a God full of grace. He's giving, overflowing in His generosity. And we'll see this, of course, towards the end. But then we see in verses 8 through 9, I I see God's God's mercy that that comes out in this. And when evening came, 6 p.m., the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, "'Call the laborers and pay them their wages.'" All he's he's just obeying what it says in Deuteronomy 24, got to pay him at the end. And again, God calls uh, the foreman. And who's the foreman? Who's the rewarder according to God's, uh, you know, plan? Who will be the one to come to judge the living and the dead to reward those? It's Jesus, okay? Just to kind of put this together. And he says, beginning, call up the laborers and pay them according to their... But he says, call... And here's the, this becomes the interpretive clue about something's going to happen here. He says, beginning with the last up to the first. This is bring those hired who are last and pay them first. And this is where the, this, the story starts taking the shocking turn. For It's something that they need, these disciples. Again, remember, he's trying to teach his disciples, you need to understand differently... You need to change your expectations. You need to change from I deserve slash selfishness slash pride to humility, to submitting to the king. He's trying to challenge them to think this way. Here's what my kingdom is like. Here is how I reward. Here's what my ways are like. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. When the disciples heard this story. They're shocked. Don't miss that, okay? Don't just read right past and say, well, we expect Jesus to say that. Don't forget these disciples hadn't heard this before and they're shocked. So be shocked. But be shocked for the reason that that He wants us to be shocked, to look at our own hearts and our own expectations and how we view others. And don't miss God's mercy here. Yes, he's generous and that's about his grace, but here's the deal. He does not hold against these workers that have been hired at 5 p.m. who only worked. He doesn't hold that against them, their lack of work. He's merciful to them and gracious to them. All right? Now, that's going to be a big point later on. So just remember that, okay? Because God doesn't hold against us our failures our flaws, our lack of work. Any of you flawed, failed this week? Me too. So verses 10 through 15, and this is where I called submitting to God's sovereign right. We have to see this, and again, as American Christians, this goes against our core. We don't like someone who's in charge over us. What do we do? We vote them out. We sign petitions, get them out of the way. Doesn't work that way with God, folks. And don't fight against him. I'm telling you, you will lose. How do I know? Because he's God. <laughs> don't fight him. Be on his side. Join his family. And if you're there, and I do, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, when I say this, this means me too. Don't fight against him, Christians. Don't fight against dad. Follow dad. Because if you fight against him, What happens? His spankings hurt. Hebrews 12, 1 Corinthians 10. I you Acts chapter 5. You know, wow. So let's learn here, right? So let's submit to God's sovereign right. So when now in this story, we have a something that I actually identify with here. It says, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. And, and again, that's fair, right? They only worked one hour, they get a denarius. Yeah! Let's see, they worked one hour, I've worked 12. 12 denarius? Yes! I would be, wouldn't you be thinking that? Aren't you kind of doing the mental calculations? No? Okay, now I've seen the live, so you guys can go like this, say yes, Chris, all right, there you go. So here we go. But, each of them also received a denarius. They received the exact same amount, a day's wage, and you're thinking, what? And that's what you should be thinking. And on receiving it, they grumbled. And this word is a cool word in the Greek. This is the last one I'll do. It's agon It's a word that sounds like what's happening. It's anomatopoeia. Ama- I, it, I got it right. There we go. But it's one of those words. They're grumbling against the master. I do it Right? That's, they're, they're grumbling at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us. That's the heart of it. They, us, oh, therefore your trouble, right? They, you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Again, when it got hot there, it gets hot. They grumbled. And do you blame them? I don't. I mean, I I would react the same way, honestly. I would think I deserve more. That's the key. That's the problem. You have made us equal to them. Yep. They're starting to see the whole point. That's the point of what Jesus is trying to tell them. They bore the burden of that day, the long, hard, back-breaking work, climbing up and down these terraces, you know, working and... And, and the heat, oh man, and yet these guys who only worked for one hour towards the cool of the day, 5 p.m. is not that bad. 5 to 6, one hour. Yet you've made them equal to us by giving them the same amount of pay. That's unfair! You ever say that to God? What does that, what does that display in us when we say that? Self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-orientation, and it's a lack of love for others. You know what those workers should be doing? Rejoicing that they're desperate, maybe they're friends, who knows, but these other laborers who are trying to feed their families, who are in the same desperate situation, working hand-to-mouth, they should be rejoicing that they get money to take care of their families. There's a lack of love. It's a lack of compassion, a lack of humility, right? Selfish, self-centered, and quite frankly, presumptuous. They're telling the master, the owner, the one who has the resources, they don't, and yet they're calling him, they're grumbling against him. How presumptuous of them. Isn't it funny how our pride kicks in so quick? We often forget what we should be. I mean, I love this, this phrase. Yet for the grace of God, there go I. Martin Luther said that when he's looking at people who are at the, you know, hitting rock bottom. You, you see somebody who's lost everything because of drugs or whatever bad choices they've made. And, and it's easy to say, wow, boy, look at them. And Martin Luther's charge to Christians like, no, look at them because if God didn't intervene, that could be you. Why? Because you have the same kind of heart, right? How many of you are honest about that? We need to be. We need to recognize what God has done for us in saving us by His grace and His mercy, right? We don't deserve anything, folks, but look at what we get. Look at what we get. We inherit eternal life. You guys, if you're looking for your best life now, I can't wait for heaven and all that's ahead because that's eternity. This is short, right? Let me keep going through here. I'll finish up. Notice how he replies to them, friend. He's trying to soften the blow. He's trying to draw them into relationship. A little bit mild rebuke, right? I've been good to you. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? You're getting a day's wage. I didn't back off on my deal. I'm still being fair. Again, he didn't have to hire them in the first place, did he? Wow. The wage was agreed to a fair one and a generous one at that. And He says, take what belongs to you. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. The master, he has the 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 resources, the money to dole out, he has the position of power and authority, and indeed he has the right. And yes, he does get to choose, doesn't he? You okay with God being the one who gets to do the choosing? And by the way, who's the most fair loving person in the universe? A God. Let's let him have that right. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge me my generosity? And the answer to this is yes. The master is allowed. He has the sovereign right. He owns the vineyard. He has the money to pay out. And without the master, there is no reward. And that word "begrudge" actually is a word. It literally means evil eye to look on it means to look on with evil it has darkened vision due to jealousy and a self-focus and no love for these eleventh hour workers and generosity actually the word it's it's the good in the greek it says you why are you looking on me with evil and questioning my goodness is what it is This is the master calling out the laborers. Rather than seeing his grace and hiring these needy, desperate laborers and rejoicing in the mercy he has shown to their fellow laborers who can now feed their families. They are self-centered and rather see the master as evil and stingy. And we gotta notice this. Will we compare ourselves to others and have an ungrateful, self-centered focus when it comes to salvation, about who gets into the kingdom? Do we trust that He is good and right and is gracious, and therefore we aim to be the same, gracious? This is a question and a challenge of submitting to His right and authority. It's a question of humility before the king and really and he finishes the story with the same phrase and this really i call this surrendering my supposed rights and enjoying god's goodness so the last will be first and the first last and this is really where we kind of gets to the so what imagine your place in this parable which of the workers will you be the 11th hour i can't believe i got a full wage I can feed my family. Or are you the first hour worker? I deserve, I should have more. Come on, God, it's not fair. Where are you? I know at different times it changes, right? But this is a question we have to ask ourselves. How do you feel about a 45-year-old serial murderer with a deathbed confession? And he's saved. How would you feel about that? I haven't talked to Dr. Dobson personally, but he, the story is that he met with Jeffrey Dahmer in jail, and he became a Christian before he was executed. Hmm. Does that sound fair? Or, what about that lifelong Christian? Became a Christian in their youth and became a missionary and served overseas their whole life and then were martyred at 70 years old. Fully saved. But if you compare the two, what are you thinking? It's not fair. You know what's fair? What's fair from God's perspective? And His perspective is the only one that matters, folks. What do we really all deserve? Hell. That's the clear statement throughout Scripture is what we deserve. Now, that's why God's grace and mercy through Jesus Christ and dying for our sins on the cross, that's where it should just, just be a brilliant light and saying, oh, thank you, God, that you're not fair. Now, He is fair because He took care of the sin. There's, you know, We talked about that before, but here's the deal. Not the kind of fairness we want, right? We get His grace and mercy, and I'll take that any day. So where's your humility? Is your self-centeredness and pride blinding you to God's goodness, grace and mercy? Are you missing out on rejoicing with others for others and God's in how God saves them and blesses them? Or do you look at them and say, "What about me, God?" Yeah, what about you? <laughs> Don't compare yourselves to others. Look at him. And rejoice, and if they get blessed, when I hear about, I love the praises that I, when I, you know, hear them from people, I say, praise God. Love that. Just let God be God, and let Him be the one who's sovereign over us, over us in salvation and how He treats us in this life, because we get eternal life, folks, with Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Amen. If you want joy, learn how to surrender and give up your rights. Well, it's, I, we have rights. Well, you know, we have the Bill of Rights in America and all that, but don't forget, we don't have rights before God. We live under His sovereign rule. But here's the deal. He's the one who will always, always, always do the right thing because He said He would. And we know that God works all things together for good for those who are called of God and who, those who love God, right? For those He predestined, He foreknew, or foreknew He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's our end, to be more like Jesus, and that's the best. Learn to give up your rights. Trust God that He knows what's best and rejoice in His goodness to others and praise God for His overflowing mercy and grace to you and to others. Value the mercy of God, the grace of God and salvation. Amen? That's what it means to be in this community, right? To, that's who we have to be characterized by, okay? So if you need to do some soul searching, me too. But we've got a merciful, loving God who's patient with us, all right? So let me close in prayer, and then we have another song. Oh, we're going to do offering. Oh, guys, yeah, offering. If we have the ushers come forward, I'll pray for the offering, and then we'll do the last song. Yes? Oh. Okay. And this is your dad, you said? Okay. Okay. Yeah. What's your dad's name? Mike. I'll pray for him for right now, too. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Lord, we just, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And Lord, our thoughts are directed towards uh, so many who are still recovering from uh, Harvey, Hurricane Harvey in, in, in the Houston area and that whole area, God, but also now what's going on right now in Florida, God, we pray for, for Chris's dad, Mike, and then for other families there, but Lord, for the people there, God, we pray that uh, You would protect them. Lord, and, and, and this is just, we've seen this throughout history, that catastrophes make people rethink their life, their values. They think about eternity and God, I pray that through this, that more people would, would turn to you, the only sure shelter, the only rock, the only refuge, you, Lord Jesus. And God, I pray they'd scream out to you and that many would be brought into the kingdom uh, through this, God. Um, so Lord, in, in all this too, I thank you for the stories of Christians and, and churches stepping up to, to uh, provide aid and to help. And God, I pray that would be true in this whole thing in Florida as well. And Lord, too, here in Park, help us to be the kind of church where people know they'll hear your word preached. They will see Christians loving each other and helping each other. And in a family, a, a church that wants to be a, a blessing to this community. So God, may you be glorified in our lives today, tomorrow, this week. And, and God, we just thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And thank you for the offering. <laughs>